Welcome to Fatch TV. Fatch TV uses technology that is feature-rich and sophisticated, yet completely easy to use. Besides live, on-demand, and radio streaming services, we offer brand building, advertising opportunities, and professional services such as web design, video editing, graphic design, and more. Sign up today for your 30-day risk-free trial by visiting us on the web at FatchTV.com. Do you have a special gift that you'd like to share with the world? Then consider broadcasting your message on BTRN. The Bean Talk Radio Network is local, national, and international broadcasting with powerful programs that enlighten minds and change lives. BTRN hosts are passionate about purpose, motivating listeners to confidently move forward in the direction of their dreams. Become a part of the Bean Talk Radio Network today and contribute to positive change tomorrow. We are BTRN, the Bean Talk Radio Network. Experience the power of being. Being explores the various modalities associated with self-help and spirituality. Master divine guidance. Connect to source energy and expand your consciousness. For complete show listings, visit beingwithronash.com. So we've taken our next step in this infinite journey of enlightenment. A series of events have taken place that has brought us to where we are right now. This is the most important time of our lives. It's in this very moment which exists prior to a thought that we have the potential to be. Being exists in this moment, in this time, and knowing, seeing, feeling, and experiencing all that there is right now. Stay tuned as Ron Ash teaches how to locate our special gift, connect the spirit, and intentionally create our experiences. Welcome to Being with Ron Ash. I'm Ron Ash, your host. We are live and local, national, and international on great stations worldwide for a complete list of our affiliates and showtimes. Visit us online at beingwithronash.com. That's beingwithronash.com. Today you are Being with Ron Ash and Patty Fivette. Hello, Patty. Hello, Ron. How are you? I am fantastical and magical, my friend. Every day is better than the last. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I love it. I absolutely love it. I think it's a good enough story to stick to. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's I, fantastic. You know, it's funny. In, in our daily walk, we often come across people who kind of think the opposite way. And I came across someone this morning, and they were all about, yeah. uh, I'll never have money. I'm, I'm broke all the time. And I'm like, hey, ho. <laughs> Let's and that's that exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> exactly. And I said, so that's been your continuous experience, right? I says, how about you try this? So we'll see what happens next time I come across that person. Oh, <laughs> but yeah. it, it was it was so <laughs> heartfelt 
that it was, yeah. you know, having an effect on me. And I could c- clearly see that she was very successfully using metaphysics, the law of attraction, and all the principles uh, revolving around those things to get exactly what she didn't want in her life. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, maybe yeah. that one little seed you planted, maybe it'll grow into something beautiful for her. I, I hope so, because that's what I'm all about, planting seeds. And we're going to be planting some seeds here tonight. We're going to be uh, talking about your book, The Making of a Mystic, which does a lot. It accomplishes several things, doesn't it? Yes, it does, actually. It does. First, it tells. It starts off. It tells my story about the automatic writing and the where I was in my life when, when automatic writing just happened one day. I run. I didn't even know what automatic writing was at that time. <laughs> I wasn't enlightened. I'd never heard of, of automatic writing, and and uh, at, and it was a low point in my life, and and I was having trouble even just getting to the grocery store, getting food for the week and getting home. Mm-hmm. You know, automatic writing? Oh, my goodness gracious. But anyway, so the book starts with that, and then as the automatic writing shifted into a more a stronger spiritual connection within mm-hmm. me, uh, in other words, as I realize my spiritual connection that is already there, um, I began to get messages about how humanity can learn from trees and how to get along with each other. Mm-hmm. And so that's a section of the book. Uh, another section of the book is, is right before that is my own question and answer, the automatic writings. And it's it's very psychological in nature, but it's also spiritual in nature. Mm-hmm. It has a very high vibrational frequency. And then I, I get where I'm using the poet's heart and I'm out in nature and words and phrases will come as I... I feel a oneness with oh, oh birds, butterflies, plants, mm-hmm. weather, this type thing, and it's such a high vibrational frequency that, and such love that it it comes in uh, phrases and it comes out very poetic. Mm-hmm. And but toward the last of the book, part five, part six, there's some wonderful takeaways for the reader. The reader can um, actually use some of the exercises, and in the final uh, final section of the book, can use some of the exercises and some of the thoughts that came through as I was writing the book, and and actually have their experience in connection to the vi- divine, not like I did, mm-hmm. but in their own way. And that's what's important because we're all different. And mm-hmm. that part six, I had an editor said this. This is my takeaway from your book, Patty. He said, this is what I am going to take and earmark and read every day and, you know, and put somewhere where I can see it because this is important. And I, and I said at the time, I said, this came through me, and uh, it's it's really important. I read it myself sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's connecting with the divine. So those are the, that that's the book in jest. That's the mm-hmm. book. Briefly, you know it, it's interesting because you know you speak of animals, you speak of trees, you speak of nature, and we're all part of these things. And I, I think we we kind of 
you know, forget that at times and we get so far removed by all the distractions of life that we forget to just go out there and just kind of ground ourselves and plant our feet in nature and maybe go up to a tree and just hug a tree. You know, people have these things about tree huggers and they equate that with environmentalists and things like that. But if you ever really just went up to a tree, wrapped your arms around it, put the side of your head against that tree, you will feel some amazing things, won't you? You really do feel some amazing things. The trees that I uh, hugged, the trees mm-hmm. that uh, I don't want to say corresponded with, but the yeah. trees that shared their spirit with me. Let's let's put mm, it that that's way. That's a perfect way In of putting words, it. The sh- yeah, the sh- trees that shared their spirit with me, they were older trees. They were grandfathers mm-hmm. and grandmothers. They were just huge older trees. They had the most wisdom. Mm-hmm. They really just profound wisdom about uh, uh, life and and branches that don't get tangled up with another tree growing next to them and sharing space and and being in your own presence and making do with the best the best you have with what you have at the moment and mm-hmm. being in the moment just lessons that we all could learn and that took me by surprise also but i opened up while sitting under one thinking i was going to do some automatic writing and the next thing i know i'm hearing the story of a tree and mm-hmm. why not i started writing and and wow so many beautiful lessons from that i never thought this would happen to me but it's it's a it's a surrender and it's done mm-hmm. with love it's completely done with love and, Ron, how much better we all would be if we could not only look at ourselves in the mirror and feel our love that's innate as part of our being, but look at uh, the person next to us on the train uh-huh. in, in their eyes. Look, look at, yeah. at our friends, our parents. Look at the people we thought that were our enemies for one reason or another or, or just disagreeable people. Look, it's there. Mm-hmm. We're just blocking it. As you said earlier, humanity has forgotten this. Mm-hmm. I think it was more part of being uh, thousands of years ago. But now in the Western society, we are so full of the business model. You know, mm-hmm. set a goal, and and it's what you do, what you do, what you do. And I have found in my life that if I let what I do be an expression of what I am instead of defining what I am about what I do, it, you get in a flow and it becomes so much fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, as it's in, really so much fun. As in nature, everything's intertwined. Everything relies on each other. I mean, even the trees, you know, the trees have roots. The roots meet other roots. You know, it connects to the soil, it connects to the water, it connects to the stones, it gives us oxygen. I mean, it's everything is so interconnected, and we really are one on this planet with all things. We really are. We really, really are. Uh, I've come to believe, i come to know, that everything on this planet, uh, every natural thing that grows is, and even may, 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 the rocks and, and the mm-hmm. soil, everything that's part of the planet is an individuation of spirit. Yeah. It's spirit expressing itself as a tree, spirit expressing mm-hmm. itself as a plant or a rock. And in order to... Uh, 
understand the essence of this tree, this 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 butterfly that flies by in such an erratic pa- pattern and does not live long, uh, or, or the daisy or the wildflower in the field, uh, it, it requires to stop and pause mm-hmm. and realize that this is life expressing itself in that form. Mm-hmm. And when you do that and appreciate it, and open up to that l- vibrational frequency. That's how I see it. Each thing has a vibrational frequency. Yes. And open up to whatever that vibrational frequency is, and to open up, I, I do it with love. Mm-hmm. And you feel that oneness. And oh, isn't yeah. it profound? Yeah. It's amazing. It, and, and and people it, experience it all the time, and they shrug it off. They're not aware of what's happening. No, they are not aware of what's happening. And that, that's that's uh, a little sad, yeah. but um, you can be aware. Anybody can be aware. Yeah. And I have discovered that we all have different talents that allow us to be aware in different ways. Mm-hmm. Very true. Uh, many people shrug those feelings off, and I often encourage people, when you feel these things, when you feel these chill bumps, when you feel these vibrations, when you feel this energy, sit with it for as long as it lasts. And when it happens again, guess what? It'll be stronger and last longer. This is your connection to spirit. We're all connected all the time. There is no here or there. We're all connected here and there at the same time. That's exactly right. And when we feel like we're not connected, mm-hmm. it come, that not connection is not true. No. It's us. We're telling ourselves a tale. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're telling ourselves a mistruth. We're allowing ourselves to breathe a, a, a mistruth. Um, I was walking the other day, and not far above my head, it was not quite nighttime, mm-hmm. but you could still see the sun was just peeking over the horizon, so there were little, little rays of light still there, and you could see the pretty sunset colors. But an owl flew... Right, right over my husband and I, and mm-hmm. we could see everything on that owl, and we just paused just for a moment, mm-hmm. and it was just the most beautiful experience. But how many people would see a bird flying over and not even notice it? Yeah, it's very true. And once you open yourself up to those things, and you realize that these uh, things that we view as inanimate objects are actually there sending us their vibration and helping us to grow and helping us to understand, especially these animals like the owl you you spoke of. I've had experiences with the owl in places in my life where I was beginning a new chapter and, and all of a sudden you see this beautiful white owl with a huge wingspan fly right over the top of you. Now, what is the chance of that? That's a message. That's telling you that, yes, (laughs) you're at the right place. You're at the right time. Keep on going. And speaking of chills, I'm getting them right now, just thinking about that story. That's my affirmation that, yes, that is what the message was at that time. You understand it. That's your confirmation. And I do understand that. That is a confirmation. And I've had those confirmations myself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the confirmation just comes, and sometimes I ask for a confirmation. Yes. I think this is the right direction to go. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think this is the right way to think about this, but I am not sure that 
that uh, I've got some insecurities with with this situation or that situation. Um, uh, send me a confirmation, and sometimes it will come in the form of an animal. Sometimes it will. Mm-hmm. I, I, Unusual. I have several sightings of one particular animal, uh, even if it's in pictures or or poems I read or something like yeah. that. You know, several sightings over and over and over, and I will get, I will get a um, a confirmation that way. And sometimes my confirmation comes in the dream in dream form, mm-hmm. but or something somebody says. But the, the, the a spirit always answers us back. It always does. Our job is to know it's coming and mm-hmm. to watch for it. Yeah, and we have to be present for that to happen. And we have so much technology today, it's very easy to, you know, put that animal into Google, learn about that animal, you know, try to find out if there's a totem meaning of that particular animal. See how that fits into what you're going through in your life. And your answer may be right there in that sighting, in that repetitive sighting. It could be a number as well. Everything's a vibration. Everything is a vibration. Everything. And, and many, the vibrations are quite yeah. profound sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're profound on a very, very subtle level, too. Mm-hmm. It's not always uh, a heavy vibration that knocks you, knocks your awareness, you know, into play. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a, a, a very quiet whisper yes. vibration. Mm-hmm. But that's still just as profound, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. tell tell me a little bit about this the first time that you began to uh write automatically and what was that about what were you writing Ron it was the time of my life where everything was falling apart mm-hmm. in my first book when life cried out I explained that I had gotten on my knees in a thunderstorm and uh said a one sentence prayer that changed my life with every cell in my body I meant everything I said I said whatever is keeping me in the way of walking my spiritual path may it fall from me well guess what everything began to fall from me house marriage relationships community every mm-hmm. everything fell from me and so it could be integrated at another level but during this initial integration part I was going to see, I had allergies that were so profound I was not functioning, and I had panic attacks. And I was going to see an energy healer who worked with, with these things, and, and it was about, I lived in Georgia at the time, and it was about a two-hour drive. But I went started like four or five days a week, and, and it was just so profound. And she knew that my intuition had locked up in childhood. Mm-hmm. She also was a psychologist. And it had locked up in childhood. Uh, it was not valid. Um, so it got locked up in, in my mind somewhere. So anyway, so she said, getting back to the question, she said, Patty, I want you to come to my house. I've got a, she was studying energy medicine, and she said, I've got a lady coming in named Tina coming in, and she's going to be teaching us how to connect to spirit. And, and uh, well, I had uh, uh, just left a very fundamentalist, Protestant church, and Mm -hmm. I just don't know about any of this. She said, come on, I'll give you a couple of free sessions. Okay, now she's got my attention. Free sessions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I went. But mainly I went because I felt like I was supposed to. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I went, the, and it surprised me. There were eleven of the most intuitive people I have, women I have ever met, in my life, and they acted like it was the most normal thing in the world. And for me, it was scary, and people would fuss at you. And and but see, that had been my experience, and it was an untruth I was telling myself. Anyway, the last day I could do the exercises, and that surprised me. But the last day, she said, "I want you to go to a quiet place in the room and, or in the house." And write at the top of your, take your paper, write at the top of your paper a question that has plagued you all of your life. Then go into altered state as best you can, the way I have described, using your breathing and slowing down and opening up. And see if you get an answer. And when you hear the answer or see a vision or something, jot down what what you think it meant. And I thought, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, sure. And that, that was my thought, and she said, go try, Patty, at least go try. You're not, you know, you're going to cut yourself off if, if you don't really go try. So I thought, all right. So I went in the back corner of a bedroom and sat like a Sufi mystic who knew what she was doing, but I didn't have a clue, <laughs> but obviously something knew what it was doing, you know, yeah. a big with capital S something, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I wrote the question at the top of the page, why do I never feel good enough? Mm-hmm. That's what I wrote. Yeah. And I went into altered state, and I became a witness to something that was happening. My hand wrote something at the top of the page, and I don't know what it was. And it wrote something that I didn't know at that time. It mm-hmm. wrote at the bottom of the page. Then it moved to the middle of the page. It moved uh, back on, under the top, and it began to fill in spaces with, with words. It didn't come out in some it says It was just words, and but it all went together, and I didn't know what I had written, and then it was over. Mm-hmm. And I was back, and I looked, and Tina had come into the room, and I was sitting there just bawling, just absolutely bawling. And I get emotional thinking of it now. You mean something out there cares enough about me that would answer this question for me? I had no idea that would happen. Just no idea. And Tina said, have you read it? And I said, no. And she said, well, read it to me. And I read it. Well, we both had tears. I went back, and out of 12 people, well, counting Tina was 12, uh, me was 13, but out of... um. Other people in the room half wanted copies, and uh-huh. and, the, and it was just profound. It was just really a profound experience. And I kept doing it, writing my question and getting answers. And then I wondered one day if the electronic frequency that comes off of a computer would interfere mm-hmm. with it. And so I covered the computer screen so my editor wouldn't get in the way, the internal editor I have when I write. Yeah, so the, I covered the, uh, the computer screen. and I, Yeah, the ego of it all. I wanted to keep that out of it because I didn't want to uh-huh. mess the process. I'm getting good answers here, you know. Yeah. And it's, good uh, stuff. it's better than any psychology session I'd ever been to. And uh-huh. so I kept writing my questions and... And uh, the answers would come as long as I kept that computer screen uh, covered, you know. My fingers would just just type, and I sort of knew what I was typing, but not what the whole thing was going to be, you know. And and it, it was a form of automatic writing on the computer. And that's how it got started. It came right out of the mm-hmm. blue. And I don't think it would have come had I not completely surrendered that night in the thunderstorm. Yeah. Yeah, I just that, don't think whatever it led come. you led you to that point. 
yeah. created the opportunity to do this, the automatic writing, to get those messages. Now, when you're writing, do you find that – I kind of already know the answer to this question because I've done mm-hmm. this automatic writing before I knew what it was as well. It would just start happening yeah. at these strangest times of the of the day, like 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever, and I would yes. just look at it afterwards, yes. and I was like, I wrote this? Is this – Yes. Did you find that yes. it wasn't in your own voice? Yeah. Uh, it's not in my own voice. Mm-hmm. No, the writing is, um, it doesn't look like something Patty Fivette has written. It has a yeah. different tonal quality to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did and, you find and, that to be the same yeah. way? And, and yeah. I mean, some more than others, but uh, even today I get people um that have read you know my books and they say, Ron, you know, I, I, I've spent some time with you. <laughs> you're very approachable. You're very easy to speak with. You're very easy to be mm-hmm. with. But you know, when I when I read your book, it seems like it, there's there's someone else there. You know? Like they could wow. see me, but there's some part yeah. that's just like, you know, yeah. wow, this stuff where is this very profound thought coming from? And some of it even a little alien when I look at it. Yes, yes, I understand that completely. It's a dialect that I'm not familiar with at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will have different dialects Mm -hmm. depending on where I am and what I'm doing, if Mm -hmm. that makes any sense at all, and I imagine it does with you. Yeah. Um, It's not always exactly the same. That's why I have not, and it's it's a different vibrational frequency. That's why I have never tried to get it a name mm-hmm. other than spirit. Yeah, because that's what it is. Yeah, that's spirit what is it is. Spirit is a collection of all of us, isn't it? It is. That's exactly right. It's a collection of all of us. That's well said, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's And I have never tried to name it or personify it or anything mm-hmm. like that because deep inside I feel like that's going to make me not open up as well to mm-hmm. the entirety of the situation. With yeah. that, I, if I quantified it, then I would be... Uh, um, how do I say, trying to uh, sip water out of a straw instead of just gulping it down. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I've never done that, um, but I am aware in my body that it comes from a very holy place. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, The Making of a Mystic, you talk about yes. cultivating awareness. Can you, what, what exactly do you mean by that, cultivating awareness? Oh, cultivating awareness. When, um, let's see, how to start with cultivating awareness. It's being more aware, Mm -hmm. but it's not just a one-time thing. It's noticing, use your senses and notice things. Notice Mm -hmm. the placement of objects If when you walk into a room. That's one way of being aware. Don't just walk into the room and sit on the sofa, but but be be more aware. But in synchronicities, notice the synchronicities synchronicities that come into your life. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness, this is the third time I have seen the number 444. That must mean something. Mm-hmm. Uh, notice the white owl like you so beautifully described. For me right now, it's um, herons. But notice notice the, the heron that flies 
really notice it. Don't just mm-hmm. look at it. Yeah. Open up your poet's heart and feel it and um, be in awe of it. And the cultivating part means to keep doing that. Know there's always something richer and deeper uh, that your awareness can bring to you. Don't ever assume you have all of the answer Mm -hmm. because spirit is infinite. It goes on. It's 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 fantastic, actually. Yeah, and it's infinite. It's ever changing. It's never the same thing twice. Unless I haven't gotten it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me for laughing. You know, I think I'm very human. Even, that does even, happen. <laughs> even biblically, when when you look back and when Moses says, "Who shall I say sent me?" I am that I am because I'm I'm. This yeah. is what I am right now, and and in in a minute from now, I'll I won't be the same. And you will not be the same either. We're always changing. We're never the same. I love that story. I really do. Yeah. And then he says, who, me? I'm slow of speech. (laughs) I gave you talents. I'll be there. Go do it. You know, and that's that's what happened with me in the automatic writing. Okay, I did it. And then then one little piece said, "Um, let's share it now. Mm-hmm. Oh no! Yeah, <laughs> it's there not you grocery go. store conversation. It took me yeah. a while to get to that point, and mm-hmm. if I did not have somebody that said this is something that you really need to do, mm-hmm. um, I, I would have I would have gotten there, but I wouldn't gotten there as as, as quickly yeah, as I did. Yeah, it's very interesting how we get to where we're supposed to be. Patty, it really is. By yes. author of the by making that. of a mystic. And uh, you can learn about Patty and all of our guests at beingwithronash.com. Thanks, Patty. I really enjoyed our uh, visit today. I have enjoyed this too, Ron. Thank you for having me on your show. All I right. really we'll like have... what you're doing. <laughs> we'll have to have you on again real soon. Okay, thank you. All right. All right, we'll be back with more Being with Ron Ash after this brief break. We'll see you in a few. Hold tight. that is feature-rich and sophisticated, yet completely easy to use. Besides live, on-demand, and radio streaming services, we offer brand building, advertising opportunities, and professional services such as web design, video editing, graphic design, and more. Sign up today for your 30-day risk-free trial by visiting us on the web at FatchTV.com. Do you have a special gift that you'd like to share with the world? Then consider broadcasting your message on BTRN. The Bean Talk Radio Network is local, national, and international broadcasting with powerful programs that enlighten minds and change lives. BTRN hosts are passionate about purpose, motivating listeners to confidently move forward in the direction of their dreams. 
Become a part of the Bean Talk Radio Network today and contribute to positive change tomorrow. We are BTRN, the Bean Talk Radio Network. Experience the power of being. Being explores the various modalities associated with self-help and spirituality. Master divine guidance, connect to source energy, and expand your consciousness. For complete show listings, visit beingwithronash.com. special gift that you'd like to share with the world? Then consider broadcasting your message on BTRN. The Bean Talk Radio Network is local, national, and international broadcasting with powerful programs that enlighten minds and change lives. BTRN hosts are passionate about purpose, motivating listeners to confidently move forward in the direction of their dreams. To host a show on BTRN, become a part of the Bean Talk Radio Network today and contribute to positive change tomorrow. We are BTRN, the Bean Talk Radio Network. the Being Talk Radio Network, live and local, national, and international on great stations 
Worldwide, for a complete list of our affiliates and showtimes, visit us online at beingwithronash.com. That's beingwithronash.com. Today, you are Being with Ron Ash and Janine Wiest, and we're talking about her book, The Alchemy of Self-Healing. Welcome, Janine. Thank you. It's a great day to talk about alchemy. It is a great day to talk about alchemy. What day is it, Janine? <laughs> Every day. <laughs> Every day is. And, and you know, we have some listeners that are, are listening right now, and they're saying, alchemy, what is that? So we better clarify a couple of things there and let them know exactly what alchemy is. Sure, absolutely. Well, alchemy is a process which transforms something ordinary into something extraordinary. Mm, I like so, that. Yes, and it's kind of a wonderful, it's actually my favorite word, and it's wonderful because you can use it in terms of healing, Mm -hmm. healing your physical body, healing relationships, uh, you know, healing perhaps you're discontented with your lot in life and feel as though you're not really living up to whatever your soul's purpose was, and so you can employ alchemy uh, through the the book that I've written through a variety of ways to get in touch with a nature-based relationship with mm-hmm. your body. Because nature works, nature banks on diversity, and it's uh, accessed from within. It becomes that sort of infinity spiral, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of figure eight infinity spiral. So the more you're connected to what is in the, in the world, the more you can affect change on what's going on internally, so you can honor that universe inside you. Mm-hmm. Is that why it's so important for all of us? Oh, I think it's it's hugely important, and I think it's something that isn't taught in school. It isn't, it, and when, when people talk about alchemy, oftentimes they'll think of, you know, witches over a pot mm-hmm. in Macbeth stirring a special potion to make something happen, or, or the old spinning straw into gold from Rumpelstiltskin, which are true, truly parts of alchemy, but they've been mythologized in a way, and I'm making it practical. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, there are things you can do Monday morning <laughs> uh, when you read my book that, that can change your perception of the world. And I think when we think we know everything, we're doomed. Mm-hmm. When we approach the world from a questioning standpoint and an inquiry standpoint, we're far further along in terms of actually being wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a huge problem for a great many people is they get to this point where I know everything. I have nothing left to learn, and they just told me they know nothing. Right. So 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 that's talking about teenagers. <laughs> well, you no, know, sorry, I, I couldn't, I I couldn't I resist. <laughs> I don't restrict it to teenagers because I've come across it with, with a great many people. They're like, that's it. I know it all. Nothing else to learn. But the world is changing. We're changing all the time. So alchemy, how is it present in an average person's life who's never heard of alchemy, who's never dealt with alchemy, who's never read your book, The Alchemy of Self-Healing? How has this come into play in their lives without them even knowing it? Well, for example, if you if you have if you're ill and you always seem whatever happens, you always seem to uh, get a cold, catch a cold at certain you know in certain situations. Maybe mm-hmm. when something's being asked of you. Maybe when you're being asked to step into your power, and you're scared of that, or it's something you've never done before. Uh, one of the things you can do, you know, one of the default mechanisms your body can do is make you sick. 
so that there's no way you can ever uh, really truly succeed. But it's okay, right? Because you were six, so who would expect you to? That's right. You know, attempt such a big thing. But that's actually they're they're, they're doing research right now that uh, that it's a totally emotional thing that causes colds, and so you know because when you think about it, why is it that some people People can walk outside without a scarf and without a hat, and mm-hmm. they never get a cold. And other people can be all bundled up and have every kind of mentholatum and, you know, known to man, and still they they succumb to uh, to what we call the common cold. Mm-hmm. So so alchemy is at play, and your connection to uh, your your ancestral beliefs are at play, and you have an opportunity to either say, well, this is my lot in life, there's nothing I can do, or you can change it. And that's the beautiful part. You get to change something that you may have taken for granted. Um, It comes into play also in your relationships, for example, if you feel like, well, I'm stuck, there's nothing I can do. I think Mm -hmm. any therapist would tell you that all all that has to happen in a relationship is for one person to change. Mm -hmm. And in a relationship just has to change. It's a law of physics. Mm-hmm. Something has changed and it's being acted on differently. Yeah. yeah? So when you really feel like belting your partner instead, you just give them a loving hit, kiss or a caress, that'll totally change the <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> well, maybe not. See, that here says, that's, that's really an interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up because there is something that has to happen in between. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard, and I think when people listen to this, they'll think, oh, that sounds so woo-woo, because there's no way when I want to belt somebody that I'm all of a sudden going to just be able to turn around yeah. and feel like kissing them. Well, there's mm-hmm. this divine space that I talk about uh, called neutral, and what it is is it's a way to step back. It's not a way to not feel anything. Okay. okay so let me make that clear. So you're stepping it's back just, and you're observing. You become the observer, but you become an active observer in terms of that you're still involved, right? You're still connected, yeah. and you, it's almost like uh, like a somebody in a sports situation being at the ready. You're ready if the ball comes your way, or you're mm-hmm. ready to hit whatever needs to be hit in order to achieve a goal. But you're not uh, expecting the ball will come your way. You're mm-hmm. not demanding, well, I can only relate to this situation if you do this. Yeah. That's usually dangerous. <laughs> Quid pro quo. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is definitely have a uh, sort of, I, I think of it in the movies of like panning back, like the camera pulls back to see a bigger picture. So mm-hmm. rather than being stuck in the you-ness and the me-ness of it. We pull back to see the larger picture. Oftentimes there's an irony there and a sense of humor can come in mm-hmm. when you pull back to look at the bigger picture. Yeah, and So that's an, alchemical, that's an alchemical piece that's happening right there, just that moment that you pull back, that you breathe differently, uh-huh. things are changing. Is concentrating on the negative aspects of that relationship or that career or that family member a type of alchemy when it comes to past that continually the universe delivers this to you again and again? Well, it yes. I mean, we all like we all like what is familiar, even mm-hmm. when what familiar what is familiar is awful. 
or painful. But we default to that because we know it. So this is an opportunity to expand and change that and shift it. And why wouldn't you want to when... When the when you know the world is infinite pure possibility, I mean mm-hmm. it is. So, why wouldn't you want to tap into that? Whatever your default mechanism is that you don't. I mean, you listen. If you have a default mechanism and you love it, yay, stick with it. <laughs> but if you have something that's not working for you, yeah. Yeah. why wouldn't you? Trying to break that cycle. Maybe you have to do the opposite. You know, I, uh, what do I want to do? I want to do this. Uh, what result will that get? Well, that always gets me this result. Maybe I'll try something different this time. Right, right. And and if you don't, the thing is, I think where people get stuck is they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do, and so they think, oh, well, I better the, uh, you know, the, like the devil that you know is better than oh, something, I don't, whatever I it might be. I can't stand that expression. <laughs> one of my dear friends used that on me one time, and it drives me wacky. Me too. I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know because it's just so. Uh, How about a pass so on the determinative. You're, you're just, yeah, it's just <laughs> awful. Well, I have this exercise that I offer people called bringing down heaven, which has nothing to do with any particular religion. Yeah. But what's wonderful about it is you're actually moving through space and inviting uh, sort of the the torus shape, which is like a a wonderful 3D egg shape of energy that's all around you that actually is your energy that belongs to you. And you're inviting that into the picture into whenever you're trying to make a decision. So when you employ alchemy and when you follow the exercises that I outline in really practical terms in the book, when you do that... You're able to make better decisions because you you have a bigger pool of energy to pull from. And I think what's fascinating is that oftentimes the energy behind us mm-hmm. is energy that's really our energetic real estate, but it's hardly ever utilized. Think about mm-hmm. it. You know, you're, we're always moving forward. We're hardly ever allowing for this through this 360 view, mm-hmm. this 360 of energy that's really ours. So even just taking the the time to do a simple exercise like bringing down heaven, which is actually a an ancient Qigong exercise that I utilize to uh, to show some of the the terms that um, that we, that we work with in the book in the classes that I that I give. Uh-huh. Um, when you have that ability to kind of say, "Oh, isn't this interesting? This is mine too. How mm-hmm. is that feeding me or not?" And what would I like to do with that? How would I like to employ that energy to my advantage in a situation, in a, in a relationship, or in a healing crisis to make to make something work for me in a way that I, I haven't experienced before? Because when you're in pain or you're in a, a lousy relationship situation and you want to change it, uh, you know, as we've already talked about, you you can't do the same thing that you've all. all, all He's been doing. You need to uh, sort of have a new set of tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that really so, comes into play in families. It comes into play in romantic relationships. It comes into play in the workplace. And your book, The Alchemy of Self Healing, you'll even uh, tell people how to deal uh, with certain things, e holidays specifically, how to keep the peace in the family. Can we talk a little bit about that? 
Sure, absolutely. Well, um, definitely that ha- that goes back to what I brought up in- earlier about the idea of neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I also talk about the the uh, triangle of disempowerment, which is in in that triangle there is a a perpetrator, a victim, okay. and then the third leg of the triangle is rescuer. So now we've all played each one of those roles at some time in our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But the question is, you know, to what end? How have we how have we been successful? And it really, none of those roles are particularly satisfying, ultimately. Really, the best thing to do, the healthiest thing to do is identify, gee, am I being cast in a role by two other people? Are they bringing me in as the perpetrator or bringing me in as the victim or bringing, mm-hmm. bringing me in in the, you know, as the rescuer, and then recognize what that, you know, define it for yourself, what's happening, and then step away from the triangle. Just Mm -hmm. step away. You know, refuse to engage and refuse to play that part. And then then that diffuses whatever would have been an escalating kind of, you know, nightmare, certainly as we're talking at Mm -hmm. at a family reunion kind of situation. You know, if you know that your brother always plays the role of the victim, Mm -hmm. he's looking for perpetrators. That's right. He may not even consciously be doing it, but that's that's what he's doing. They're unaware of it, but they're actually looking for it. They're calling it into their life. They They want to be proven right. Exactly. And the universe is happy to oblige, isn't it? <laughs> yes, but you don't have to be happy to. You and I don't have to be happy to oblige. We can choose to identify it and step away. And and somehow identifying it also and knowing that can keep you from being triggered uh-huh. by I can't believe he's doing this to me again. That's right. You know, you That's can right. you can you can drop that story and choose a more joyful story which is Oh, my brother, he's so predictable. Here we mm-hmm. go. Well, let me just have some, you know, more appetizers and watch the watch whatever's going to unfold. But yeah. we don't have to be involved in it on that pain, what becomes a painful level. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there, there's our, our present relationships. And, and you also talk about in the alchemy of self-healing uh, a role our ancestors play in our daily life. I found that to be very interesting. Yes, that's the work that I'm doing now. Actually, I'm working on another book, and uh, it's going to be all about the ancestral connection because it's so powerful. Um, The the stories, the mantras, the family stories that we unwittingly take on. Uh, For example, I like to tell the story about how on my mother's side of the family, they were Irish potato farmers, (laughs) and it's a very hard life. Yeah, so... Uh, I grew up hearing from my mother, who did, in fact, go on to have two advanced degrees, and she got herself, you know, she she was able to shift her and change her life, but she couldn't completely lose the story, because what I grew up hearing is, Janine, life is beautiful, but it isn't easy. So, of course, as a kid, I loved the first part, life is beautiful, sounds good to me, yeah, but the, but the, the, but it is an easy part, well, this is my mother, I love her. She knows what she's talking about. I trust her. So it must be true. So then I look at my life now and I look back at what I did in my 20s and my 30s, part of my 40s, and the reality is 
I made things hard. I was living out my mother's, uh, you know, if you will, the ancestral prophecy of her side of the family, which is life is life is hard. You have to sweat. You have to dig in the ground for everything, every single potato you can can get can grab. Yeah. So very very. Um, very, very interesting, but also what a huge waste of time. I could have spent, you know, this last decade of my life has been so much easier since I was able to identify the ancestral mantra. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I also have clients, for example, who will have a mantra like, don't let anyone know what you have. Whatever you do, don't let anyone know. And those become the people who are millionaires but maybe die freezing because they didn't pay the gas bill or, mm-hmm. you know, um, because they're in such fear. All And most of these stories are fear-based. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you have a fear-based story or a decree like life is hard and a little child hears that and says, okay, life is hard, my mother said uh-huh. so, so, so I'm going to create that. It's dog-eat-dog, the world's a rat race. All of those, are, those are perfect examples, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you have one that you that comes to mind from from your growing up? I'm not Rockefeller. That's a that's one I remember. That's a great one. Yeah, <laughs> there, there were a lot of them. Oh it's gosh, I think at this though, point like, I'd I'm rather not... forget. But it's sad because the, the <laughs> you know the the parent that was telling me that has continually lived their life with the money that you're speaking of, and uh, but with the experience of poverty. Right, not enjoying it. Yeah. Not enjoying it. No, enjoying it to a point, but after the enjoyment, the fear comes in, and that's there's it's not going to be enough. Yeah, and that's from ancestors past that that's mm-hmm. been passed down to them. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty fascinating, and it's also uh, something that can be untangled. It's How can we go can about doing you. that? Well, um, you know, I tell people to create, when people come to my ancestor workshops, what I, what I do is I have them cre- create, and this is a great tip for listeners, create an ancestor altar. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Marianne Williamson came to my writer's group, uh, which was a wonderful day, and she said, when you put something on an altar, it is altered, right? A-L-T-A-R, A-L-T-E-R. That's right. I like that. And. Yeah, I love that, and I thought that was fantastic because it was going along with the work that I'm writing about now. And, you know, what it means is that you're honoring them. You're not saying, oh, God, I want to get as far away from that as possible. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a reason why sometimes people move across country, you know, or go to college or take that trip to Europe or take a trek across the mountains of their state, whatever, just because they need to, at some some point, differentiate themselves mm-hmm. from those old family stories. Yeah. But you're missing, so, you're missing a point if you don't actually bring in the honoring. Mm-hmm. And so by creating an ancestor altar, which can, can be as simple as uh, a set of keys and a few photographs on top of a piano or a mantle or a hallway that's decorated with where you have an old necklace hanging decoratively mm-hmm. or, or a watch that you put under glass. Just something that throughout your day as you pass it, you can acknowledge it. 
thank your ancestor for the role that they did, for the truth that they had that was their truth. But you can also at the same time then take that moment to say, but this is not no longer my truth. Mm-hmm. I choose not to have this operate going forward in my life. But I honor you. Mm-hmm. And it's a very powerful, really simple, powerful thing. But I'm all about finding the really practical, powerful, easy things to do. Because if you make something too difficult or it has 12 parts to it. And yeah, it gets all these too much. Things, who's you want to hear to it. I, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you you just gave me a simple idea from something that inadvertently created itself. I had been finding feathers, and I kept placing them in a pot on the uh, uh, shelf in the uh, uh, kitchen. And I go by that every day, and it's it's got feathers all the way up to uh, uh, you know a, a red-tailed hawk and and down size-wise, and they're just all there. And I just when I find them outside, I put them there, <laughs> put them there. Ideal for what you'd say. That's wonderful. That's wonderful and and very powerful. Mm-hmm. I just read a beautiful story about a girl, a little girl in England who um has been feeding crows and they they're starting to bring, they've started to bring her gifts like little tiny buttons and whatever you can imagine. Isn't whatever that is interesting? Enough, yeah, whatever Isn't is that small alchemy enough, at its highest level. It is. Whatever you can whatever you can you can fit in a crow's beak. Mhm. <laughs> So that's the gift, and there was a whole big picture of all these things that that they little shiny objects, little baby you know baby beads and things like that, and so a real uh, synchronicity takes place, mm-hmm. and that's something that can happen. That's part of what the ancestor altar is about too. So you're creating a positive synchronicity. Mm-hmm. What are some of the yeah. uh, in- incredible synchronicities that you've experienced in your lifetime? Most recently. Well, um, I'll just tell you today about a client that I had this morning who is a singer, a professional opera singer, and something happened traumatic, and she hasn't sung for years, and she's still quite young and very good, but she um, hasn't been able to sing. Mm -hmm. And we did some work, and this morning she was able to sing uh, a bit of an aria, and burst into tears because, you know, and she has a gorgeous, I mean, just an absolute, like a heaven-sent voice. But she just looked at me and said, I haven't, I haven't been able to do that for years. And when you think about the power of sound and the power of song mm-hmm. and how, um, how much we connect to our larger selves through music and sound, whether mm-hmm. it's ancestor sounds or whether it's, natural nature sounds for someone who's so gifted to feel as though she's lost her gift and and even as young as she is that the best days of her gift are past her you know how how magical to be able to have that not be that's not the truth Mm -hmm. and so she's actually able to take whatever limiting belief she has had which is usually held deep within the body it's not something, I mean, sometimes people have an idea of if there's a specific event that they can say, well, when I fell, then I knew I'd never really dance again mm-hmm. at the level I was dancing or whatever. But oftentimes it's over time, or as we've been talking about, it's a story that someone told you and you mm-hmm. believed because you were young enough and you didn't have the toolbox to you know, question it. You just took it as absolute truth. Mm-hmm. 
So that was just really magical uh, for me to witness. And I think sometimes the healing and creating from a facilitator's point of view is about being a really good witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny because, again, today something happened in passing with someone, and, and they approached me and they said, you know, you're you're still – you know, shooting for things. You're still, you still have dreams. You still have, you know, goals. And, you know, and I was listening and taking it all in and said, said to him, you know, why wouldn't you? You know, you're, he's, I think he's 52 years old. I mean, that's not the end of the road. You know, there, there's plenty of time to do other things. You learn to Absolutely. dance, learn to sing, write a book. It was about radio. And I said, start a radio show. I'll show you how to do it right now. <laughs> I'll That's even fantastic. go on air with you if you'd like. You know, really? That's fantastic. I mean, yeah, because people have this. It's something that they've been taught. If they haven't accomplished what their dreams by the time they're, I don't know, say 39 years old, it, it's done. Better luck and next that's just a false. And that's such a false, that's such a, that's such a false limiting belief. You know, people mm-hmm. say, well, you know, if I go to school, then I'll be, you know, 65 by the time I finish. And it's like, well, if you don't go to school, you'll still be 65. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you won't have you, you won't have gone to school. So, you know, it's going to happen. Either way, you might as well go to school, you know, and, and do, like you say, go for your dreams and do what you, what your heart is, uh, is calling for you mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. What, what do you want your readers to get mostly from this book, The Alchemy of Self-Healing? Well, I wrote the book to answer a need that I saw over the years with clients just feeling disconnected. And I go into three levels on in the book that you can be disconnected on. And most of us are disconnected, you know, at various times during the day mm-hmm. from one of those. Um, but it's really good to stay in touch with, first of all, your physical body, your bones and the fluids and the organs, but also the metaphysical level, which is your mind and your body integration. It's also the lack of mm-hmm. body integration, which I think is really, I see that all over the place, uh, because it's so easy to fragment mm-hmm. uh, these days. Everything is happening in a split second. You get a text. Uh, you, it, the text isn't even a full sentence. It's just a few words to get across what needs to be done immediately. Mm-hmm. And there's no sense of individualization in terms of the words that you're using or mm-hmm. you have to guess at the person's uh, the emotions attached to that yeah 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 it's so easy to make uh, make an error in judgment as mm-hmm. to what person really means and yeah. then the third level is metaphorical which are, which is what we've been all really lovely to touch on in this interview is your desires and your dreams and your soul mm-hmm. longing and all that stuff that you never have time for and I would say that if you're missing out either physically because of illness or metaphysically mm-hmm. because you're disconnected from your, your your mind is operating on one level and your body is just sort of being dragged along for the duration, or the level of of a metaphys uh, of, of metaphor with your desires and desires and your dreams, you're you're then you're missing out on the mm-hmm. the whatever your personal alchemical recipe is going to be, or is it that at this moment in your life? Might change in five years, might change in five minutes, but for right now, 
the recipe of for your life that you're cooking up, how you're going to experience what's happening in your present from moment to moment, is going to be disconnected to the degree that you are, in fact, disconnected from mm-hmm. your body. So that's why everything is practical. I have people go out on touchstone walks and find go go looking for nature in the city, go looking for something that doesn't belong in in uh in nature on a nature mm-hmm. walk kind of like the little crow bringing the girl a button yeah yeah <laughs> you know and all of those things that can expand your your world view and that's i that's what my mission is is for everyone to have a nature based relationship That's great. There seems to be a theme tonight on being with Ron. As we talked a lot about vibration, we talked a lot about nature. I like the human being. I look at it this way: hue, the vibration or or sound of spirit, uh, in throughout mankind, men, women, and all things, and existing in this present moment right now. Human being. What's more beautiful than that? Sounds fantastic. Yeah. All right, Janine Wiest, your book is uh, The Alchemy of Self-Healing, a revolutionary 30-day plan to change how you relate to your body and health. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. All right, we'll be back with more Being with Ron Ash right after a quick break. We'll see you all on the radio real soon. Hold tight. TV. Fatch TV uses technology that is feature-rich and sophisticated, yet completely easy to use. Besides live, on-demand, and radio streaming services, we offer brand building, advertising opportunities, and professional services such as web design, video editing, graphic design, and more. Sign up today for your 30-day risk-free trial by visiting us on the web at FatchTV.com. Do you have a special gift that you'd like to share with the world? Then consider broadcasting your message on BTRN. The Bean Talk Radio Network is local, national, and international broadcasting with powerful programs that enlighten minds and change lives. BTRN hosts are passionate about purpose, motivating listeners to confidently move forward in the direction of their dreams. Become a part of the Bean Talk Radio Network today and contribute to positive change tomorrow. We are BTRN, the Bean Talk Radio Network. Experience the power of being. Being explores the various modalities associated with self-help and spirituality. Master divine guidance, connect to source energy, and expand your consciousness. For complete show listings, visit beingwithronash.com.
everyone, and welcome to Being with Ron Ash. I'm Ron Ash, your host. We are live and local, national and international on great stations worldwide. For a complete list of our affiliates and showtimes, visit us online at beingwithronash.com. That's beingwithronash.com. Today you are Being with Ron Ash and Bob Luca and Betty Andreas and Luca. Hello, Betty and Bob. Hello. I like the way that sounds, Betty and Bob. (laughs) Betty and Bob are coming over tonight. Uh-huh. <laughs> Hello to you listeners as well. Exactly. <laughs> oh, this is this is exciting. It's a, it's an exciting book. I mean, it, it, it's a story of uh, alien abduction uh, mm-hmm. experience that you have. It has been written so eloquently in this book by Raymond Fowler. Um, tell us a little bit about your story. Well, first of all, Raymond Fowler is a wonderful author. He really Mm -hmm. researches everything. It was because of him and a local group from Massachusetts uh, that got in contact with Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Um, And I had sent a letter to him about three years before, and he filed it away. He had uh, a thing in a a local newspaper that anything unusual or strange, if they would please report it to him. And uh, at that time, uh, my memory had failed for quite a while, but I did remember the strange being, what he looked like and everything. And so what I did and what a little bit what had happened, and so what I, I'm sort of an amateur artist, and I drew a picture of it and mm-hmm. sent in the information to him. As I said, he filed it away for three years, and then the group from Massachusetts asked for anything with humanoids, uh, if they had anything like that uh, where people reported uh, something happening. And he sent the information to Ray Fowler and the group, and they in turn asked me if I would be willing to undergo regressive hypnosis Mm -hmm. to find out what else had happened because I had at that time uh, only the memory of the be- one being and what it looked like with a large, bulbous head, gray skin with the um, dark black eyes, scary mm-hmm. eyes, and uh, a little bit about them being in my house. And that had gone on for a period of time. What in the world is this? Why do I keep on remembering this? And then when I sent it there, they got, as I said, got in touch with me and regressive hypnosis uh, motion uh, sessions began. And uh, most of the information came out at that time. Where were you living? I was at that time. I was living in Ashburnham, Massachusetts, when okay. I sent the uh, the information to Dr. Heineck. It mm-hmm. was a different place, and the place where I had the adult encounter was in South Ashburnham, Mass. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, so, so Bob, we we did you experience any of this, or you know, what, what's your take on it? Oh no, I, we weren't married at the time. I never met Betty until uh, 1977. Mm-hmm. Um, what we can get into uh, a little later, I'll let her tell you what happened to her in '67. But first, her first experience was in 1944. Okay. My first experience was in 1944. Um, her major adult experience was in 1967. Mayan was in 1967, and at this point we had never met each other. We lived in mm-hmm. different states. I lived in Connecticut. She lived in Mass. But I'll let her tell you what happened in 1967 because that was a major encounter for her. 
Do you think this right. has something to do with the two of you being brought together? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah, what well, it sounds like to me. <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll get into that a little bit on down All the right. road. How we got in, uh, how we met was very strange and, and uh-huh. prearranged, I'd have to say. Mm-hmm. All right, Betty, take it away. All right. Well, Ed, I, I think I'll start from the beginning to give your uh, listeners a little bit more understanding of how I came to be the, the 1967 encounter. Uh, at seven years old, I was living in Lemonster, Massachusetts, and I was out in the front yard in a little hut my brother had made, and I was eating crackers and waiting for my friend Dee to come over and play dolls. And all of a sudden, it seemed like a bumblebee entered the little hut and was whizzing around my head, but I could see that it was a, a tiny ball of light, and it struck me into in the very center of my head between my eyes, and it felt like it bit and stuck to me. I went over backwards, and I could hear a voices, mm-hmm. one voice, but with many voices in it, and it said, the wee little one is coming along fine. And I asked, where, where are you? And uh, they said, oh, we're here, uh, don't be afraid. And uh, they said that I was going to be very happy very soon. Mm -hmm. Well, then years went by, and at the age of 12, we had then moved, when I was about eight eight years old, to Westminster, Massachusetts. And while there, it's sort of a farm area. And at 12 years old, I had another experience. And I was a tomboy, and I had gotten a couple of old traps out of a a shack that was on the property. And I remembered where I saw a large hole up in the woods. I sort of, uh, being a tomboy, I was always up in the woods of fishing out in the water and so forth. So I thought, oh, I think I'll try these traps and see Mm -hmm. what I can catch. And so I put down a trap. And that was the second time that I had an experience. I had gone up after school to check the uh, traps. I picked up some stones along the way, because every time I went in the woods, I didn't know what I would see, and I carried some little stones and everything mm-hmm. just for protection. Yeah. And I went to where I had the trap, and all of a sudden it was very strange, because I saw this gray thing coming out of the hole. The trap was gone. Uh, the the wood that it was uh, attached to was knocked down. And as I watched this thing, it looked sort of like one of those gray bee, large bees' nest with wrinkled um, fabric on the bees' nest. And a head came out, and a person, little person came out dressed in a brown uniform. And uh, it touched something uh, like he had like buttons on his chest he touched something there again a light came out hit me between the eyes and Mm -hmm. i went and it was at that time that i was told that they checked me and i was told that i wasn't ready yet i had another year Mm -hmm. so i after a period of time when I was 13 years old, I was picked up again. However, this time, I was picked up by a moon craft and taken aboard. And it was at that time I was I was given a an implant within mm-hmm. my my eye. They removed my eyeball and uh, put implants within me. And uh, I think they were track uh, something to track me as mm-hmm. I grew. 
And so anyways, uh, I was taken to see the one at that time. And after I was brought back home, uh, then my life continued on as it was. But the adult encounter was I was married. I already gave birth to seven children. My seven children were growing. And my ex-husband, my husband at the time, had had an, a car accident, and he was hospitalized. He was in quite a bad condition. And so I was all home by myself with the seven children, so my mother and father came to stay with me to help out as much as they could. And it was at that time uh, the encounter happened. Uh, my, we were in the living room. The kids were watching television, and the lights were out. And all of a sudden, a reddish-orange light came drifting through the um, pantry area, through the kitchen, into the living room. Mm-hmm. And we we all thought, uh-oh, there's either a fire or the police are out there because the reddish, air, uh, reddish light is what we thought was them. Mm-hmm. My father had rushed past me, went into the kitchen and then into the pantry. And in the pantry, it was like a half pantry, half kitchen. So there was a wall up there. I did not see where my father was. He was actually the first one, Ron, to see mm-hmm. the beings copping down the hill and toward the house. Whoa. And then they came in. Yeah, and, you know, afterwards, uh, the investigators all asked, would your father please be willing to talk with him about it? You know, but he didn't want to get involved, being the man, you know. Yeah. He was afraid of the Social Security being taken from him. And, of course, if it turned into where government, government would be involved, they would uh-huh. go more for a man than a woman. Yeah. And I said, please, will you please tell what happened to you? I need support because I remembered what had happened. Mm-hmm. I had remembered the lights. I had remembered the beings coming into the home. And so he finally says, okay. So he, he went to the researchers, so they came to him, and he told them exactly what he had seen. Meanwhile, uh, what happened was I was in the kitchen, and five beings entered my home, right through the door. They did not open it. They came right through the wooden door and stood before me. And it was amazing. I, you know, I wondered, what in the world is this? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I I felt a little peace come over me, and a uh, scripture came into my mind, entertain the stranger, for it may mm-hmm. be angels unaware. And so I thought, wow, yeah. these must be angels, but they don't look anything like angels <laughs> I've ever seen on pictures. And so they were standing there, and they were in blue suits. They had a, a sash around their their um, uh, waist and mm-hmm. a sash across their chest. They were had large, bulbous heads, gray skin, big, scary black eyes, and they had boots on. Mm-hmm. And when they came in, uh, as I said, I was kind of fearful of what it what it was, but peace started to come over me when I thought of the scripture that came into my mind. Mm-hmm. And they started to talk with me, but the leader speaking with me was speaking to me through my mind. And it seemed as if they were A wanted, telepathy. Right, like telepathy. And the thing was, is I, uh, what I drew from it was that they wanted something to eat. And so I went to the refrigerator, got some meat, got a frying pan, put it on the stove, and I started to 
took it. And as I did, a little bit of smoke came up, and the leader jumped back as if something was wrong. Yeah, yeah. And at that time, I heard him say in my mind, no, 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 we don't want that to eat. We, we are looking for knowledge tried by fire. And the only thing I could think of is knowledge tried by fire. That, the only thing I could think of was the Bible. And uh-huh. I did have one that was on an end table in the living room. And this was my daughter Becky's Bible. My children had gone to the people's church up the street, and each one of them were given a a Bible when they joined the church. And at that point, we moved into the other room. Now, evidently, uh, one of the beings went over to where my father was in back of the half wall in the pantry and must have been there with him because at that point I only saw the leader and the three beings beside him. Uh-huh. And the thing was, uh, I reached down for the Bible, and I passed it to him. And when he held out his hand, I could see he had three fingers. And he raised his other hand over the Bible, and three thinner books appeared. And he passed them to the three that were standing by him. They held them in their hands, and they were much thinner at that than the regular size of the Bible. Uh And the pages just turned one after another after another. However, I did not see any print whatsoever on those uh, smaller books. But there was like white light just flipping by. And it Uh seemed as if they were consuming whatever it was with their eyes when they were looking at the thin books. At that point, then, uh, I saw my family, my mother and the children, sitting on the couch, and he must have known that I was concerned because they weren't moving. And mm-hmm. uh, they, the leader, who said his name was Krasgar, allowed my daughter Becky to come out of that state, and she stood up and just, she couldn't move, but just standing there and watched. And when the exchange of books happened, uh he gave me a thin blue book, and he said it was like an initiation. Okay. And uh, in this thin blue book, uh, there were pictures, and there was unusual writing, not writing that I really understood, but he said that I'd be allowed to keep it for 10 days, and after 10 days, it would be gone. So that's how it all began. Do you want me to continue to go? Uh, well, let me further? let me ask you a, a few things. Um, sure. Uh, you 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 mentioned a mooncraft came and got you. Yes. What did that look like? That mooncraft. I, I find it, it interesting it that looked, you, you said mooncraft because you know people use spacecraft, flying flying right. saucer. Well, I've never uh, heard mooncraft. Well, actually, the 1967 uh, was a regular metallic craft, but the moon craft was different. I was only 13 years old at the time, and Mm -hmm. that, I don't think, is in the Andreasen Affair. It's in the Andreasen Affair Phase 2, that kind of information. But um, 
Yeah, the, um, what happened was I got up early in the morning. I wanted to go up in the back of where the garden was to check the blackberries. And there was two hills that uh, rolled up beside the barn one and then the second one. And my father had built steps there. And I started up the stairs, but my attention was turned to the right by a bright light in the sky. And I knew it was the moon. And I thought, what is the moon doing out at this time of day, Mm -hmm. early in the morning? Yeah. And it just got brighter. It seemed like it was moving toward me. And, I mean, the moon doesn't move like that, but it seemed like it was moving and the next thing I knew, I was inside a lit room, and mm-hmm. there were small beings that were standing there. You said and that that they... was the moon. That was the moon craft I was talking about mm-hmm. when I was thirteen. So years it old. looked it looked like the moon. So, well, okay, yeah, so you, right. you said that you were brought to the one. Who, who could you tell us a little bit about who the one is? Well, you know, this is going to be a difficult thing to do. The investigators tried to get that information from me as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ron, I have had another um, UFO experience, and I think now I know definitely who the one is. Okay. Uh, And this, Bob and I have written uh, another book, a sixth book together, and that information will be in there, so it's kind of hard to give that information out until you know others have also seen it. The the one it was bright light most all the time. I was fearful because it was so beautiful and bright each time. I think I've been before the one at least four or five times, and it's always been bright light. I have never seen the face or image of. Uh, the one, except for bright white light and hearing mm-hmm. his voice. So that hmm. is where the moon craft came into. But yeah. it was really the 1967 encounter that I was uh, taken out of my home and brought mm-hmm. before the the metallic craft that was set in the back of the yard. What's so strange is, too, uh it was just recently that I learned, um, see, I remembered some of the things that the beings had told me about the craft and what it looked like and what they used, and mercury was one of the things. Well, just in this past Thanksgiving, my daughter was over visiting the day before she was going up to her sister's for Thanksgiving. And she happened to mention to me that her and her brother was wondering where the outside entrance was to the the basement of that house in South Ashburnham. So mm-hmm. I told her, and I told her also how we had changed a lot of the interior because we put it up for sale later years. But uh, anyway, she came out, and she said that how she used to play over by the cement foundation. Evidently, there had been a barn or something with the property there. It had been torn down, and half of it had been uh, made into a wooden garage on one the left-hand side, but the other right-hand side was all open, and the kids would always play there, and the neighborhood kids would come over. Well, I learned from my daughter that they found mercury there on the uh, foundation, the uh, cement foundation, some mm-hmm. mercury, and she was playing with it back oh, and forth no. in her hand, shifting it back and forth. I said, what? Mercury? Are you serious? And I said, that's poison. And she says, yeah, we were all playing with it. 
So to make sure, when she was going up to her sister's house, her brother was going to be there, and her father was there, and uh, her other, her sister. And she happened to mention at the table about the mercury, and did they remember playing with the mercury? And they all said, the the children all said, yes, we did. So they never told me when when they were younger, because, of course, they didn't know it was poison. Yeah. You know? And then, Ron, uh, another strange thing is where the craft had landed in back of the house on the slight hill, grass and, and uh, seed would not grow there anymore. We thought at first it might be kids uh, passing through to go to school or whatever, but no, it was too large of an area. Mm-hmm. And so evidently either that craft had leaked or discharge some of the mercury, and maybe it wasn't as dangerous after that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But to me, I was shocked just recently because of my daughter's uh, statement about it. And that was the metallic craft. That was a metallic craft, Now, were, yes. there, were there different beings associated with that craft? Uh, no. They, well, the one uh, that I went into when I was 13 years old, they were small beings, and they uh, had white uh, garments on, you know, like suits on. And mm-hmm. there were some others that I had seen while I was there as well, some of the regular uh, five-foot ones. Yeah. You or know, I, I never hear four. stories yeah. of alien encounters in which the beings were wearing clothing. Hmm. Right? Really? Oh, yeah. my. Yeah. I, 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 well, I, I, I I've never heard you're... of them being naked for that. <laughs> well, I, I, maybe it's maybe I haven't heard enough stories. Probably because uh, they didn't seem to be naked where I, <laughs> each time I saw them. I think I'd be more relaxed well if they were clothed, if I ever have an experience. Oh, gosh. So this is 1967. Um, mm-hmm. So... You know, there there were people present throughout your experiences. You had family members there. They were actually in some kind of a, a, a state when they came to your house back in the beginning mm-hmm. of the story. Um, right. When the when the second craft came, the metallic craft came. I mean, there were witnesses to the basically to the mercury afterwards in 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 the children. But did anybody else witness or have memory of uh, the experiences that you're so eloquently sharing with us tonight? Uh. No, well, Becky did because uh, she was taken out of suspended animation for briefly, yeah. and um, she's had encounters as well. She's mm-hmm. had experiences. And uh, Bob, you said you also had your experience in 1967, correct? Well, the the adult one, yeah. The um, the yeah, my actual trip to meet Betty started in 1944. Okay. Um, my dad was overseas, of course, it was during World War II. Um, my mom and I were living at my grandmother's house. My uncles had built me a swing set out in back of the house. And I was, as a little kid, swinging along, and I remembered a very odd light in the sky. Even uh, as a child, I remember this because it was unusual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I finally ended up, after I met Betty, undergoing hypnosis with MUFON, and this light came closer and closer. It stopped above and to the left of my swing set. And a very thin light, uh, about the thickness of a pencil lead, shone out of this object, struck me in the forehead, 
and I was paralyzed. I couldn't move off of the swing set. This craft was a typical saucer shape with a glass, well, or something like glass, dome top. As it tipped, from time to time, I could see two of these little gray guys inside mm-hmm. um, with the big heads, the black eyes, and so forth. And what they imparted to me in my own mind, they said that they were preparing something that would be good for mankind in the future. And they also said that people like me, and there were many, many that they had visited, would meet each other in the future and okay. not not be fearful. Okay, So now it's it's a hard thing because I only had the memory of that light, but there was some confirmation because... During World War II, everybody had a victory garden. We had a victory garden, and where that thing hovered over, nothing would grow for years. Later on, um, when uh, I was being um, examined by MUFON, uh, I was introduced to a psychic that worked with the police and also had worked with the government tracking uh, Soviet submarines. She took my uh, knife, that I carried, jackknife that I carried, and w- when she related to me what happened, she gave such detail about the pencil-thin light and all, and the, the setting, the swing set, and she said there's a lot of pipes and vines I see in the yard on the left. So I thought, and this is the first time I met this woman, by the way, so mm-hmm. I thought, oh, she's off, she's off. There's no pipes, there's no vines in that yard. You know, I don't remember anything like that. And later on, I had an opportunity to talk to my mother, and she said, oh, yeah, your grandfather had built um, arbors back there for the uh, grapevines. So she knew more than I did at that Mm -hmm. point. Well, anyway, from then, uh, I didn't have any other experiences that I knew of until 1967. Beautiful, clear day. I'm on my way to the beach. I got to an area known as a trap rock where there was a quarry and there was a railroad spur going into it. There's five guys working on this railroad spur, only they're all looking up in the air. They're not working. So I look up, and I see two cigar-shaped, huge cylinder, shiny craft. Now, it it's hard to describe, but if you can imagine highly polished chrome reflecting in the sunlight, that's what they look like. They're extremely bright. Now, I'd always been interested in technical things, airplanes, cars, so forth. So, obviously, these were not airplanes. They had no wings. They had no tail section. They had made no noise, no exhaust, no contrail. So I pulled my car over to watch, and uh, one of them, from the direction from where I was, was heading toward New Haven, Connecticut, where both of the large objects were. But two smaller objects dropped out of them, saucer-shaped objects. One went toward New Haven. And the other one went in the opposite direction. So I watched till they were all out of sight, thinking, wow, this is really something unusual. Started on my way to the beach again. I got down the road a few miles, and one of the saucer-shaped ones was coming back. And it stopped. It came down, floated like a leaf, back and forth, stopped several feet off the ground. Now, all this is conscious memory. I'm looking at this thing. And all of a sudden, there was a brilliant flash of very intense red light, almost like a ruby ray laser would be the only thing I could compare it to. And somehow I was inside this this craft. And behind me was one of these little gray guys, 
And he also, uh, like Betty's, had clothes on, but it was a skin-tight uniform that was red, and they had a lightning bolt insignia on the left side of the chest. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I was asked asked or told to remove my clothing, which I did, for pretty much out of fear. At this time, I'm not going to kid you, I was scared crapless. I mean, Oh, yeah, I can imagine. As simple as that. They put me on a table that I was probably plexiglass or something similar. They examined me from head to foot. They took scrapings of my skin, scrapings of my nails. Uh, They moved my ankles around my head. At at this time, this table was highly unusual. There were no straps, no restraints, and yet it was almost like somebody just super glued me to it. I couldn't Mm -hmm. move anything except my head and my eyes a little bit. They gave me an exam. Uh, they they took sperm also. I was scanned with something like an X-ray machine, but this thing actually emitted a pinkish white light that was uh, almost like if you can imagine a sparkler. It seemed like the light actually jumped out of this thing. That scanned my body several times. That concluded their examination of me. Uh, I was put back into my vehicle went on my way to the beach. And when I got to the beach, which should have been about a 30-minute ride from where I was, uh, I lost almost two and a half to three hours. And wow. for years, I never knew what had happened to that time. And the seeing the craft and all, I only told uh, my parents, and my best friend, because in 1967, you talk like that, and, you know... I, oh, I yeah, people want... think you're insane. Something's wrong with you. Yeah, I you didn't know? want to end up with a psychiatrist. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that that started my journey to meet Betty. Now, we'll move up 10 years to 1977. Okay. I was single. I had a, a really good job. I was a service manager for a new car dealership. Mm-hmm. I had a... a uh, great salary. I had a new car, a demo every three months, uh, an expense account for my gas and whatnot. And I was uh, always a hard worker. Well, a friend of mine, Eddie, mentioned that he would like to take a trip and maybe look for employment in other parts of the country because we, uh, we were living in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So I said, sure, why not? So I went to my boss. I, um, I had a travel trailer, and I went into my boss on Friday, and I told him, you know, I said, I'd, I'd like a month off. Well, that didn't go over too big. No, the, the, in the car industry, that's unheard of. <laughs> yeah. If you get so, a day off in the road. <laughs> he says, no, no. He says, I, I can't do that. Well, I went home, and I thought about it over the weekend, mm-hmm. and I went back in Monday, and I said, Bob, his name was Bob also. I said, Bob, I, I, there's three three things we can do here. I said, I, uh, you can let me go, I can quit, or you can fire me, but I'm going. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know why, it, I didn't know why at that time I did that, because that's just not me. I was always a hard worker, and, and it, you know, I was at work every day. So I put my job at risk to take this trip. Well, it's probably a knowing, some type of knowing. You knew you had to do it. Right. Well, Eddie and I went on a trip. We've been down through Texas and out to California and Washington State, and we were headed back to Connecticut across the northern tier of the country. Mm -hmm. We stopped at a rest area, and we decided on the spur of the moment we're going to Florida. Now, this is several 
thousand miles out of our way mm-hmm. to go back to Connecticut. So okay, we no argument at all. We just both decided to go. We get to Florida and we stopped at uh, my uh, Eddie's sister-in-law had a place in uh, Florida in Pompano. We pulled our camp trailer and everything onto her property. And the second night we were there, uh, she was telling me about this woman that she worked with that had had a UFO experience. And I said, wow, that's great. I said, I'd like to talk to her because, like I said, I'd been bottled up for 10 years with nobody yeah. to talk to about this. I didn't want to be ridiculed or whatever at the time. So I went down to talk to Betty, and she wouldn't talk to me because Ray Fowler said, you know, the reporters are going to be after you about this and all, and don't say a word. So it it took me a while. I finally convinced her. I said, look, I'm not a reporter. I said, how about we have lunch tomorrow, and, and I just want to talk to you. So the next day, finally, I, we went out. I bought her lunch. I've been buying that lunch ever since that time. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, had I known then, and this is what we get into later, once I got involved with her, uh-huh. how my life would change and how much harassment we would receive from the government and other things. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have bought that lunch at the time. <laughs> I would have had to think about it. You can't go against what God has planned. Yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> once the the uh, first book came out, The Andreasen Affair, mm-hmm. just before it was published, we started noticing flights of black helicopters over our house. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's kind of unusual because they didn't seem to have any ID numbers, and they were all military. Um, In the very beginning, it was almost all Huey UH-1s. Well, I wrote Ray Fowler, and he said, well, you know, you're probably just in a flight path. I said, I don't think so. And the flights got so often and sometimes so low that they rattled the windows and everything to the point where our next-door neighbor, who was a city councilwoman, started to document the flights. Mm-hmm. Well, we were there in that house. We moved in a year. We moved from Meriden, Connecticut, to Cheshire, Connecticut. The book was out. Uh, Betty and I were doing uh, television and radio and so forth. And then all hell broke loose. The uh, telephone was tapped. We started to be followed. Mm-hmm. Um, by some government agency, I don't know which, but it, it, the reason I can say that is, as a young fellow, I used to build race cars and race on the road because there was no racetracks near anywhere near where I lived. And I got pretty good at it. So a few times when these cars were following us, I actually got behind them and got the license plates. Mm-hmm. And we gave them to uh, Police Lieutenant Larry Fawcett, who was also a UFO investigator. And when he ran the plates, they came back as unissued. So, okay, you got a government agency there. There's pretty much no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Now, the helicopters uh, started to overfly our house well, several times a week. And sometimes low enough, without exaggerating, I could take a baseball and whack them. Wouldn't, wouldn't be a problem at all. That's pretty close. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, they had an altitude. Well, you're an incredible uh, baseball player. One or yeah, the other. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, but, see, at the time, I was taking uh, my own lessons for my pilot's license. So I knew the rules and regulations. And the, and the thing was, a helicopter, yeah, they can fly low, but 
they have to maintain 500 feet laterally between buildings, and that's mm-hmm. federal aviation regulations. Yeah, these things went right over the roof of our house at 75 to 100 feet at the lowest uh, altitudes. I tracked them. Uh, I took hundreds of photos of them. I went to the FAA, the Army, the Air Force, the FBI, the CIA, the helicopter manufacturers. And when I sent pictures to the FAA, this is almost comical. I, I looked to them to, for identification. And they wrote back and said, well, we can't identify these aircraft because they have no ID numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, duh, that's why I was writing to them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, but here's where it gets interesting. I knew that the Huey UH-1s were made by Bell Helicopter in Texas. Mm-hmm. So I wrote their public relations man, whose name was Richard Tipton. And I sent him a picture, and he sent me back a letter, and he says, he gave me the model number. This is, a, I think, a UH-1H-B or something like that. I still have the letter. And he said, I don't have any pictures of these because these never left here in this fashion. He said these were modified by the Air Force for psychological warfare in Vietnam. So why do we have helicopters like that tracking Betty and I? Now, it wasn't just at our house. When we vacationed in Florida, our niece and nephew who lived there said they knew when we were coming because they'd see the helicopters before we got there. When we vacationed in New Hampshire, it was the same thing. It was a method of, for them of intimidation to try to get us not to talk. Uh-huh. Uh, when we were on Route 2, very rural route in uh, Massachusetts, we're driving along, and they came up right from a field next to us and passed over our car at an altitude of about 30 feet. I mean, that's intimidating. Mm-hmm. Now, for a little, a little more confirmation here, Betty and I were doing a lecture in Phoenix, Arizona. During a break, this fellow approached me, and to me, he was obviously military. I mean, he had uh, close crop, uh, short uh, hair, the buttons on his shirt were lined up exactly with the center of his belt. His pants were uh, crisp uh, crease in them, highly polished black shoes. And he told me, he says, we're only sending the helicopters so we don't have to hurt you. That wow. was his exact... That was his exact words. So it didn't phase us much because uh, Betty's got a lot of faith in God, and I do too, mm-hmm. but also I have a sense of humor. So a friend that I worked with uh, was had gotten out of the military, and he says, Bob, I can build you an exact replica of a surface-to-air missile. So I said, great. Well, he built it, and I took it home when it was done, and sure enough, about a day, two days later, we hear the familiar whop, whop, whop of the Huey mm-hmm. uh, rotor blades. Well, the man with the chopper was approaching the house from the north. So we took the missile and we set it up on the south side of the house. Now, I had flown over our house myself, and I knew exactly what he could see from where he okay. was. He could not see this thing until he almost cleared our roof. So as the thing was approaching, we were watching this black Huey helicopter. When he cleared the roof, we were looking at the side of the helicopter. All of a sudden, we were looking at the bottom of it. He whipped that thing around in such a sharp right-hand turn. It was an evasive maneuver. He yeah. obviously 
looking in the yard. So, you know, we got a chuckle out of it. I told my wife, I said, I bet you this guy is going back where he came from, get himself a shower and a change of clothes about <laughs> No doubt, but, no doubt. You know, You're putting fuel th- on the fire there. Well, you know, one one thing I want to say that I hold, you know, I have no ill will to end for any of these guys that are yeah. flying the helicopters. What they're doing, what they're ordered to. That's right. So you know, but we had a little fun with them on more than mm-hmm. one occasion. Um, now we get to another thing. They started taking pictures wherever we were, mm-hmm. and. Like Betty's in a store with a big glass window in the front. And I'm, I'm gonna, a guy comes along. He's actually got his legs out on the skids of the helicopter and mm-hmm. taking pictures of her. Uh, we were at a campground in Florida, Fort Christmas, beautiful campground, a lot of pines, beautiful place. And we pulled our trailer into an area. We got a lot, and there was a, a clearing. Oh, I don't know, maybe. Uh, a 75-foot in diameter or so, and we were almost at the edge of that clearing. A small helicopter comes in, a one-man military observation craft, like a bubble on the front, and the guy's taking pictures of us. So I quick ran and got my camera, and I took pictures of him taking pictures of us. (laughs) So, you know, it, it was like a cat and mouse game. Yeah, yeah. But, why do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think they're following you? Is could it be that they they are aware of your connection to these aliens and they want to learn more? Maybe they want to be around the next time they come. Are they picking up on some type of tracking device that? Uh, oh, absolutely, like, absolutely. Um, don't forget, this is 1977. We're talking about not yeah. today. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to give you an example of how well they were able to track us. Uh, Betty and I were at the house of a psychologist in um, Connecticut, and we were giving a private lecture. Betty had just finished her talk, and I started to talk about the surveillance and the helicopters. Mm -hmm. I didn't get two minutes into it when a black Huey came around this house. Now, it was raining out, and not a good day for flying. came around the house low enough that the windows in the house were rattling, and there was about 20 people there. Everybody saw this helicopter as it went around the house. Okay, so you say, hmm, coincidence. A few weeks later, we're doing a lecture for a dentist in New, Haven, um, New Britain, Connecticut. Betty finishes her talk. I start to talk about their surveillance. Boom, same thing. The black Huey uh, shows up, goes around that house. The people see it. A few weeks later, the exact same thing when we were doing a lecture for a contractor in Meriden, Connecticut. So they knew where we were basically at all times. They, I think what they wanted was to know how much of the technology Betty had seen, because as an artist with an eye for detail, oh, yes. That's she right. drew everything that she saw inside the craft, and they showed her the whole propulsion system. Uh-huh. Now, they also broke into our house on two different homes on two different occasions. Uh, one place we lived, they broke into, and the only thing that was stolen was some of the drawings that Betty had made of the interior of the craft. Uh-huh. Now, in the residence, there were jewelry, cameras, computers, firearms. Nothing was touched, uh-huh. just those documents 
it was a rural, uh, rural area, so we had to call the state police and to come up and do a report. Mm-hmm. So it was a young fella, and we told him straight out that we believed that it was a government agency, and he saw the damage. He had to do a report because I had to replace the door. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> what happened was he said, if I find out anything, I will definitely let you know. So I said, great. Well, a few days later, maybe about a week, I went down to the office, and there was another trooper there, so I asked for this particular trooper, and he said he'd been transferred. I said, well, where has he been transferred to? He, oh, I don't know. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, remember I said that I had checked and written and sent photographs to the FAA regarding the helicopters? Mm-hmm. Man named Sam Martino, who worked for the FAA General Aviation District Office in Boston, was interested enough to come down on his own time on a Saturday. And unfortunately, he came unannounced, and we weren't home. But he did leave a note on our door. Uh, a couple of years later, Connecticut Magazine did an article on us. And they tracked him down, and he said, well, he only had a, a vague memory about uh, some complaint about seeing a helicopter that didn't have numbers, but it could have been the lighting or whatnot. Well, that was bull, because it wasn't the lighting, because I had hundreds of photographs, mm-hmm. and I had the note that he left on the door. One of the other tactics that they used was the Internal Revenue Service. We had... Uh, an audit a year for the first, I think it was three or four years. And the first audit, the questions they asked Betty was, what what did you see in there? What did it look like? What did the craft look like? And so kind of unusual questions for an IRS audit. Now, what happened, as we got into this, I started to get angry because in the beginning, we looked to the government for answers. Mm -hmm. And not only the answers weren't coming, they were trying to make us look silly. Which, yeah. You know, the the policy back then was to, to ridicule uh, people that had seen things like this. So we went into kind of attack mode. Uh, I had many conversations with the Pentagon, with Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, I tried to get a an interview with the CIA. They wouldn't talk to me. Um, uh, NASA... The Pentagon finally told me that no one there would talk to me. And, by the way, I taped these conversations, so I still have them today. Um, And I didn't mind taping them because they were tapping our phones, so I figured one good turn deserved another. um, But they resorted to so many different things. Like we were uh, on a trip to Florida, and spur of the moment, we decided to pull into this KOA campground. Mm-hmm. which we did. Now, nobody knew we were there, nobody. And yet the campground manager came down and said to Betty that her son had called. That was impossible because mm-hmm. son didn't know where we were. So this is their way of kind of letting you know that, hey, you know, we know where you are, we know what you're doing. You, and you so know, so. and... It- and it's effective because I, I have, you know, I, I deal with a lot of this stuff and I have this recurring issue that my luggage is always being searched. I, I ship, yeah. I, I'm in mm-hmm. Florida sometimes. 
I'm yeah. in Rhode Island sometimes. When I if I have books and I'm going to I'm going to uh, interview you know various authors on these types of things, uh, miraculously the box that contains all those books is always the one that never gets here. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. They 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 want to know what you know, but the the worst thing that that they did to us. Um, Back in the eighties when we were we were living in Cheshire, Connecticut, mm-hmm. I woke up about two o'clock in the morning and I heard two distinct male voices talking in our kitchen, uh, mm-hmm. which was just there was a our bedroom, then a little hallway, then the kitchen. And I looked toward the bottom of the bed. We had a lot, rather large dog, about a hundred pound German shepherd, and he would always let us know if someone was there. The dog tried to get up and his front paws went out from under him, and he went right flat down on his face. So I said, oh, this is not good. Mm-hmm. I reached in my nightstand to get a, I had a thirty-eight in there, and I was going to confront these guys. Well, <clears throat> the next thing I knew, it was morning, and I had a wicked, I mean a really bad headache, and Betty said she did too. Well, we didn't think too much of it, but we we went to work that day, to our respective jobs, we came home, and she said that her left arm has been hurting her all day. She's right-handed. And I said, wow, that's funny, because my right arm has been hurting me all day. I'm left-handed. So we took off our shirts, and on the left arm, the area where you normally would get a vaccination, mm-hmm. uh, there was a approximately an inch and a quarter diameter black and blue mark with a puncture mark right in the very center of it. Mm-hmm. I had the exact same thing on wow. my right arm. So, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, it, we're getting down to the end of the program. Um, oh. The okay. Andreasen Affair, a true story of a close encounter of the fourth kind. What would what do you really want your readers to get out of this book? I mean, it's, it's packed with all kinds of dialogue, from your experiences, there are photos in here as well uh, well, of the aliens and the people involved. What what do you really want to... I'm uh, hoping that uh, people that are having experiences, uh, that they will read them and realize we have lived through this. They will mm -hmm. also. Uh, Things are happening for a reason. Uh, It's all in God's hands. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, and they shouldn't be afraid to come forward and tell it. That will release it from them so they won't feel that heaviness of of having to bear something that was unusual and they can't say about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will. I think that will help. I, I was told in the 1967 I was chosen to show the world something, and that's what I thought at first it was for me to mm-hmm. explain what happened to me. But I think it's more than that. And hopefully this book that Bob and I are doing together will maybe help in some way. I'm feeling that they're here to help mankind move forward into our our next dimension, our next chapter. Yes, very much so, yes. All right. Well, uh, Betty and Bob, Luca, thank you for joining us today. The book is the end. Driesen Affair, and uh, you can learn about Betty, Bob, and the book, and all of our guests, past, present, and future, at beingwithronash.com. That's beingwithronash.com. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you all on the radio real soon. Be peace, everyone, because peace becomes you. (laughs) 